Hello, this is Eric Topol from Ground Truth, and I'm just so delighted to have with me uh, Professor Colleen Murphy, who has written this exceptional book, uh, How We Age, The Science of Longevity. It is a phenomenal book, and I'm very eager to discuss it with you, Colleen. Uh, thanks well, for having me on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, just so everyone who doesn't know uh, Professor Murphy, she's at Princeton. She's the Richard uh, Fisher preceptor in integrative, 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 excuse me, for genomics, uh, the Lewis Sigler Institute for uh, Integrative Genomics at Princeton, uh, director of the Paul Glenn Laboratories for Aging Research. Well, um, obviously, you've been in this field for decades now, uh, even though you're still very young. <laughs> um, I The classic paper uh, that I can go back to would be in Nature 2003, uh, with the DAF-16 and doubling the lifespan of uh, C. elegans, or better known as a roundworm, is that would that be kind of the first major entry you had? Yeah, that was my uh, postdoctoral work with Cynthia Kenyon. Right, and you haven't stopped since. You've been no. on a tear, and <laughs> you, we put together a book which has a uh, hundred pages of references in a small font. I don't know what the total number is, but it must be. A thousand or something? Actually, it's like just under a thousand. That's right. Oh, that's a good guess. Okay. Yeah, good guess. Yeah. So, because I too have a great interest in this area, I found the just the resource that you put together as extraordinary. Um, Thank you. In terms of the science and your all the work you've put together. So, what I was hoping to do today is to kind of take us through um, some of the real exciting pathways because. I, there's a sentence in your book which I thought was really kind of nailed it, uh, and it actually is aligned with my sense. I obviously don't have the expertise uh, by, by any means that you do here, but it says, a few years ago, I might have chuckled at the naivety of this question, but now it's not so crazy to think that we will be able to take some sort of medicine to extend our healthy lifespans in the foreseeable future. So that's a pretty strong statement, right, for a person who's deep into the science. And first, I thought we'd explore healthy aging, health span versus lifespan. What, can, you, can you differentiate that uh, as to your expectations? Uh, and, and, of course, I think, you know, just kind of general uh, how you... Yeah. yeah. So I, think, I think most people would agree that they don't want to live necessarily super long, what they really want to do is live a healthy life as long as they can. And um, I think that a lot of people also have this fear that when we talk about extending lifespan, that we're ignoring that part. And I, I do want to assure everyone that the people in the, the researchers in the aging field are very much aware of this issue and have, uh, especially in the past decade, I think, put a real emphasis on this idea of quality of life and health span. And what's reassuring is actually that um, many of the mechanisms that extend lifespan in all these model organisms also extend health span as, as well. And so um, I don't think we're going to, they're not diametrically opposed. Like we'll get to a healthier quality of life, I think, in these efforts to extend lifespan as well. Yeah, I think that's important that you're bringing that up, which is uh, uh, there's this overlap, uh, like a Venn diagram where things that do help with longevity should help with a uh, health span and 
we don't necessarily have to follow the, as you call them, the immortalists um, as far as, uh, you know, living to 190 or whatever a year. Now, um, one of the pathways um, that's uh, been, of course, a, a big one uh, for years and studied in multiple species has been caloric restriction. And um, I wonder if you could talk to that. And obviously, there's now memetics that could simulate that. So you wouldn't have to go through some right. uh, major dietary um, starvation, if you will. Um, what are your thoughts on that pathway? Yeah, actually, I'm really glad you brought up memetics because often the conversation starts and ends with you should eat less. And I think that is a really hard thing for a lot of people to do. Um, so just for the background, so dietary restriction or caloric restriction, the idea is that you would have to take in you know, up to 30% less than your normal intake in order to start seeing results. And when we've done this with laboratory animals of all kinds, this works from yeast all the way up through mice, um, actually primates, in fact, um, it does extend lifespan. And um, in most um, metrics of health span, the quality of life, it does improve that as well. On the other hand, I think psychologically, it's really tough to not eat enough. And I think um, that's a part that we kind of blithely ignore when we talk about this pathway. And of course, if we gave our, any of those animals the choice of whether they want to start eating more, they would, right? So it's like, that's not the experiment we ever hear about. Um, and so the idea for studying this pathway isn't just to say, okay, this works and now we know how it works, but as you pointed out, mimetics. So can we target the molecules in the pathway so that we can help people achieve the benefits of caloric restriction without necessarily having to do the kind of awful part of caloric restriction. And I think that's really cool. And especially might be very good for people who are undergoing certain kinds of, uh, have certain diseases or have certain impairments that it might make it difficult ever to do dietary restriction. So I think that's a really great thing that the field is kind of getting towards now. Yeah. And I think, in fact, just today, it's every day there's something published now. Yeah. Just today there was a University of Southern California study, a randomized study report comparing plant-based uh, fasting mimic, uh, mimicking diet um, yeah. versus a control diet and showed that many uh, metabolic features were improved uh, you know, quite substantially and projected that if you stayed on that diet, you'd gain two and a half years of healthy aging mm -hmm. um, uh, or you know, that you would not you would you would have that's a, a bit of an extrapolation, but quite a bit of benefit. Now, what candidates uh, would would simulate caloric restriction? I mean, what kind of molecules would help us do that? And by the way, in the book, you mentioned that the price to pay is that the brain slows down with caloric <laughs> restriction. There's at least one study that shows that, right? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So you know, it's a good to keep in mind. Um, so right. So one of the big uh, things that's been looked at is being looked at as rapamycin, looking at that TOR pathway. So that's being explored as one of these really good memetics. And of course you have like things that are uh, homolog analogs of that, so rapalogs. And so people are trying to develop drugs that mimic that, do the same kind of thing without probably some of the side effects that you might see with rapamycin. Um, metformin is another one, although, you know, it's interesting when you talk to people about metformin work on it, like it's argued about what is exactly the target of metformin. There's um, thought maybe also acts in the TOR pathway it could affect complex one of mitochondria. So like some of the things we know that they work and we don't necessarily know how they work. And then of course there's new drugs all the time where people are trying to develop um, 
to other target, you know, to other other molecules. So we'll see. But I think that the idea of mimetics is actually really good, and that that part of the field is moving forward pretty quickly. But this diet yeah. that you did just mention—that's it is really encouraging that that you know don't have to take a drug if you don't want to. If you eat the right kind of diet, it could be very beneficial. Yeah, I know. It was interesting. I was looking at the methods in that USC paper, and they sent them a box of stuff that they would eat for uh, three cycles, so multiple weeks per cycle. It was a very, very interesting report. Uh, we'll link to that. Um, before we leave the caloric restriction and these mTOR pathway, you noted in the book that there are uh, some ongoing trials like PEARL. I looked that up, and they finished the trial, but they haven't reported it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that large. And then there's the FAME trial with metformin. Um, I guess we'll get a readout on these trials in the not too distant future, right? Yeah, that's the hope. The hope that, you know, especially with the metformin trial, which I think is going to be really large, a team trial, that, you know, just to give the listeners a little background, one of the efforts in the field is not just to show that something works, but also to um, convince the FDA that aging could be a pharmaceutical you know, a disease that we might want to have interventions for. And to do that, we need to figure out the right way to do it. We can't do like, you know, 30 year studies of safety and things to make sure that uh, something's good. But like, maybe there are reasonable biomarkers that would tell us whether people are going to live a long time. And so if we can use some of those things or targeting like uh, age related diseases where we can get a faster readout as well, those are reasonable things that um, companies could do that would help us to really confirm or maybe uh, rule out some of these tar- like pharmaceuticals as uh, effective interventions. Right. And I think that would be really great for consumers to know, like, is this thing really going to do good or not? And we just don't have that right now in the field. We have a lot of like people saying something will work and it might, and the studies in the lab, but when we get to humans, we really need more um, clinical studies to really tell us that things are going to be effective. Right. I'm going to get to that um, Mm -hmm. in a bit, too, because I think you're bringing up a critical topic since there's an explosion of biopharma companies in this space, billions of dollars that have been put up for in in capital. And, um, you know, the question is, what's going to be the ground rules to get these potential drugs, uh, candidate drugs uh, to final commercial approval? But before I leave caloric restriction and insulin signaling and the homologue and the human to what your discovery of DAF-16, FOXO, and all this. Um, I just want you to comment. It wasn't necessarily uh, developed in the book, but as you know, the GLP-1 drugs ah. have become, you know, just the biggest drug class in medical history. And they do have some effects here that are very interesting. They are being tested, as you know, in Alzheimer's disease. Do you see that this is a candidate, too, that might um, promote uh, healthy aging. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because my book, you know, I finished writing it right before all this stuff came out and it's looking really very compelling. You know, people yeah. are on these drugs, uh, they lose a ton of weight, they become, but their blood biomarkers really become very good. And um, on top of just the, the changes in, uh, you know, weight and, you know, heart, you know, those kinds of effects. Let me just say, like, I think the biggest thing the biggest risk actually for aging people right now are cardiovascular problems, cardiovascular disease. And that's these drugs, no doubt, it's going to basically make a huge dent in that. I'm absolutely sure of that. What I also find really interesting with those drugs is um, that the users report that they have fewer uh, cravings for other things. So this is not being looked at. 
treat alcoholism and drug addiction, other things. So it really opens up a whole new world of things that are bad for us that maybe we could avoid just with these peptides, right? So it's kind of, it's a little bit, it's almost staggering. I really think it's going to be a huge, and as far as like an aging drug, right? If you reduce your weight, you improve all your cardiovascular function, you don't feel like drinking all the time, like all these things might be really great. And I do think that people will live longer. Yeah, no, it does have that look. And you just have to wonder if, as these will go on to oral drugs with triple mm-hmm. receptors and all very potent, yeah, uh, maybe even avoiding peptides uh, in the future too, that this could wind up being something that's uh, ext- exceedingly common to take for reasons far removed from the initial uh, uh, indication of, of type 2 diabetes and more recently, of course, obesity. Now, the next topic I wanted to get into with you were senolytics, these agents that... Um, basically are thought to uh, reverse aging mm-hmm. or slow aging. And again, since everything's coming out like on a daily basis, there was a trial in diabetes macular edema where giving a senolytic uh, after people had failed their usual um, VEGF treatment was highly successful. So we're starting to see, at least in the eye, yeah. um, results yeah. of I wonder if you could describe what your how you conceive this field of senolytics. Actually, I think they've made great uh, progress in the past couple of years because you know there there were some initial failures like the some of the things for osteoarthritis, right? That that, that went through. I think it failed the phase two, but um, but I think that one of the great things about the longevity biotech field is that they're starting to identify you know, not just longevity, like these age-related disease, uh, disorders that they could actually use. And so it's kind of doubly beneficial, right? It tells us that the drugs actually do something. And so maybe it'll be used for something else in the future. And you get through the, like, you can test safety. Um, but also helping people actually have a very real problem that's acute, that they really need to take care of. And so that's really exciting. And then in addition to the example you just mentioned, um, I was at a conference last summer where it was being explored whether some of these analytics could be helpful for middle-aged survivors of childhood cancers who do show various um, health effects from having gone through um, chemotherapies at mm, a young age. Mm. So that's really exciting, right? Could you help people who are not aging, but they actually are showing having problems that we would, you know, we kind of associate with aging. And so analytics were the, at least the first thing I'd heard about that are actually being used for that. So there may be other approaches that help as well, but I think that's really great. Well, and and just to be clear, the, the their senolytics, I guess, could be categorized. At least one function might be to help clear dead cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these senescent cells are bad actors and either they're taken out or they're somehow neutralized in their impact of secreting evil humors, if you will. Yeah. Um, are there other forms of senolytics besides the way that way of dealing with these senescent cells? I know that some uh, people are exploring senomorphs, so like things that make this those cells uh, just arrest. Um, but I do want to mention, of course, we lost a great Judith Campese recently, and she was the one who you know discovered and described the the senescent associated secretory phenotype, and we have to like re- she did amazing work in that field. Um, really like opening that up. 
So this idea that bad cells aren't just bad because they don't function, but they're actually toxic to other cells. Mm, so right. Um, that's important for listeners to know. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I think that uh, one of the things I'm excited about in the aging field is that it doesn't seem like there's one magic bullet. Right. Like a lot of researchers will spend their time working on that one thing. So if you only talk to that one person, you might get that impression. But there's a whole host of things that for bad or good, that things go wrong when we age, but those all end up being maybe um, targets that could help us live longer or at least in a healthier way. And so we've already talked about a couple of them, but you can, yeah. like, readers will see as we learn more, there might be more ways to help cells survive or to help us replace ourselves, for example. Right. I mean, I think what you're bringing up here is central because there's all these different, as I can see, there's shots on goal. Mm-hmm. That, of course, could be even used um, uh, as combinations, no less as solo uh, interventions. So we're getting closer as we mm-hmm. started this conversation to fulfilling what you, uh, I think, is, is in store in the years ahead, which is which is extraordinary. Um, along with the Senolytics, um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about these autophagy enhancers uh, as 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 a class of agents. Uh, maybe first uh, explaining autophagy, uh, mm-hmm. and then is this a realistic goal that we should be taking autophagy enhancers, uh, or is this something that's too generalized that might have um, untoward effects? Well, it's interesting. So autophagy. So just for the listeners, um, autophagy literally means self eating. So this is a pathway whereby um, proteins basically get degraded within the cell and those parts get recycled, okay? So, and the idea is that if you have a cell that's, or protein that's um, damaged in some way, um, or, you know, can be, you can, it can be renewed if you induce autophagy. Um, I think I could be wrong here, but my sense is that uh, the cancer field is really excited about autophagy um, enhancers. And so I think that's probably where we'll see the biggest breakthroughs. But along the way, of course, we'll know because we'll know if they're safe and if there's other off-target effects. So I think that um, that's largely being driven by the cancer field and the, the longevity field is kind of like a little bit behind that. <laughs> so we'll learn from them. Yeah. It seems like a really exciting approach as well. Yeah, it does. And then, as you know, um, the idea of giving young blood, mm-hmm. young plasma, which uh, there already are places that do this, um, that that it can help people who are cognitively impaired and have basically immediate effects, mm-hmm. and sometimes at least uh, with some durability. It's very anecdotal, um, but this idea, um, we don't know what's in the young blood, or young plasma to some extent. Uh, how, do you, how do you process that? Okay, well, so what we do know, and this is really work, you know, that a lot of people like Salvieta and Tony Wiscore have done where they really have, um, you know, they've uh, taken that blood or plasma and then found the parts in the plasma that actually do specific jobs. Okay. And so we actually are starting to learn a lot about that. And that's exciting because of course we don't really want to give people young blood. What we really would like to do is find out, is there a particular factor in the blood? And there seems to be a many that could be beneficial. Um, and so we really are getting close, we as a field and specifically like the, the research I just mentioned. And that's exciting because you can imagine, for example, if there's one factor that's in blood from, that's in young blood, that's very helpful. 
manufacturing a lot of that particular thing. The other exciting thing, um, again, this is Salieta's lab that found that uh, exercise mice. So even if they're the same age mice, if they're one of them is exercised, it makes factors that actually from the liver of the, the mouse upon exercise that then get secreted and then affect, improve cognitive function as well. So it seems like even within the blood, there's multiple different ways to get blood factors that are beneficial, whether they're from young blood or from exercise blood. And so um, there's a lot of things we don't yet know, but I do think that field is moving very fast and they're identifying a lot of things. In fact, um, so I'm the director of the assignments collaboration on plasticity in the aging brain. And on that website, we're developing a, um, basically a page that can show you what are the factors and what has it been shown to be associated with, because we're very interested in slowing cog normal cognitive aging and blood factors seem to be one of the really um, powerful ways that might be available to us very soon to be able to improve that. Yeah, I know. I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, Colleen. And I think the point that you made uh, you know, regarding exercise, I certainly was struck by that because in the book, because we've known about this association with exercise and and uh, cognition, uh, and um, this I think is certainly one potential link. Um, an area that is also fascinating um, is epigenetics. Okay, so um, a colleague of mine here in the Mesa, Juan Carlos uh, Belmonte, who uh, was at Salk and uh, left to go to Altos, one of these many companies that are um, trying to change the world in health span and lifespan. Anyway, he had published back, you know, several years ago. Yeah, 2016, uh, I think, yeah. Yeah, CRISPR-basically... Um, uh, modulation of the epigenome through uh, editing and showed a number of, through specific pathways, a number of pretty um, remarkable effects. And um, I wonder if you could comment about epigenetics. And then I also want to get into this fascinating topic of transgenerational inheritance, okay. uh, which may be tied, of course, to that. So what about this uh, pathway? Is there something to it? Well, absolutely. I just think we need to learn a lot more about it. So just for the listener, so epigenetics, you know, we think about genetics as basically, you know, based on DNA and chromosomes. And so when we think about epigenetics, that could be either, we could be talking about modulation of the histone marks on the chromosomes that allow the genes to be expressed or be silenced. And then on the DNA itself, there are methylation marks. And so people have used, um, of course, like uh, Steve Helfen developed a Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. Steve Horvath developed a very nice, um, he was the first to develop a DNA methylation clock, right? So this idea that you could, and that was really interesting because he based it on, um, he used this machine learning method to let, narrow down to the 353 marks that were actually predictive or correlated with age. Um, but we don't understand how it biologically, what that manifests in. I think that's not well understood. And then at the chromatin level, there's a lot of work on the specific histone marks that may change, for example, um, how genes are transcribed. And so um, understanding that better will maybe help us understand like what those changes, you know, there's things called epigenetic drift. So like genes stop being carefully regulated with age. And then how can we make that um, maintain better with age is a, it's one of the, the goals of the field in addition to like 
basically understanding what is going on at the epigenetic level. So now, um, you know, of course, could we could we alter that? Oh, it is fascinating, as you say, um, that you could have the Horvath clock mm-hmm. uh, to so accurately predict a person's biological age. Um, and by the way, just uh, a few days ago, there was a review by all these um, uh, clock uh, aging folks in nature medicine um, about the lack of standards. There's yeah. so many clocks um, to, to basically determine biologic age versus chronological age. And before we get into the translation, transgenerational inheritance, what what is your sense? Obviously, these are getting marketed now. Yeah. And, and um, you know, the, this this field is is kind of uh, got um, ahead of its skis, if you will. But uh, what what about these biologic age markers? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. The, I haven't seen that review. I should look it up. Um, it's good to know that the players in the field addre- are addressing those points. Okay. So, so just for the listeners, so these DNA methylation clocks. So when Steve Horvath developed the first one, it was based on um, the controls from very large number of cancer and like controls so they, for other reasons. So he used a huge amount of information and it really depended on the, t- he was trying to develop a clock that was independent of which tissue, but it's turned out there's more and more clocks that are tissue specific and really organism specific, species specific. So um, it really kind of depends on what you're looking at to make these and whether you're looking at chronological age or trying to predict biological age. And I think it's a little frustrating because what you'd really like to know as a consumer, uh, if you, you know, send off for one of these clock kits, like, is it right? Is it, what's the margin of error? If I took it like every week, would I get the same number? And so I think, um, my sense is that people take it until they get a low number. And then, (laughs) (laughs) and you'd really like to know if they work, because if you want to take it to like do a control and then start taking, you know, get your clock number and then, start taking some intervention and ask yeah. whether it works, right? Yeah. And so I think because the players in the field recognize these issues, it's gonna um, they're gonna straighten it out. But I think one part that drives a little bit of the problem is that we don't understand what that DNA methylation mark change translates into biologically. And if we understood that better, I think we'd have a better feeling about it. Um, and Renee and Tony was Corey a while, maybe a year and a half ago, they had a nice paper where two years ago, where they looked at, they use a different type of clock, a transcriptional clock, um, and that worked really well. So they were looking at transcriptional clock in the subventricular zone, and um, they were able to actually see changes, not just with age, but also when there was an intervention. Like I think they, I can't remember if they looked at dietary restriction and then maybe um, an exercise in the mice. And so that's important for us to know how well those clocks work. Yeah, I, well, I, I think it'll get there. It'll get there. Well, you don't you don't want to pay a few hundred dollars and then be told that you're ten years older biologically than your, yeah. you know, chronologic age, uh, especially if it's wrong, right? Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I yeah. It's, it's, it'll get there. I think it's it may not be quite there yet. And by the way, while we're on that, um, the organ clocks paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. In fact, just a recent weeks, I did uh, interview Tony, uh, mm-hmm. Miss Gray from Stanford, and we talked about. It what I consider really a seminal paper because using plasma proteins, they're able to basically clock each organ. Yeah. Uh, and that seems like a promising approach, which, which could also help 
prove the case that you're changing something favorably with one of these various intervention classes or categories. Do you think that's and that, true? And that feels more real because you're like directly looking at the proteins. Then. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. I thought that was, you know, really yeah. exciting work. And I'm actually going to visit uh, with Tony uh, in a few weeks to discuss it further because I'm so excited about that's it. That's great. He's doing great work. So it'll be a fascinating conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, this is also fascinating. Now, transgenerational inheritance mm. is a very controversial topic in humans. Uh, which it is not so much in every other species. Can you explain why that is? Well, there's a lot of, uh, I would say, emotional baggage attached to it, right? Because that's what people are talking about, like transgenerational trauma. And um, look, there's no doubt that traumatic experiences in childhood actually do seem to change the genome and change, uh, have very real biological effects. And that's been shown. So that's within the first generation. And um, it's also no doubt that in other organisms, like in plants, like DNA methylation, that's exactly how they regulate things. And that's multiple generations. So that's kind of the norm. And so the question for humans is whether something like this, like a traumatic experience or starvation or thing, has an effect not just on the person who's experiencing it, but also on their progeny, even on their grand progeny. And so um, it's tough, right? Because you, the data that are out there are from pretty terrible experiences like the Dutch hunger winter. And so there's a limited set of data and some of that data, those data look good and some of them look weaker. Um, yeah, I think that we still need to figure out what's going on there. And if it's real, it'd be interesting to know, are there ways, for example, with these epigenetic modulators, are there ways that you could help people be healthier by erasing some of those marks of trauma, generational trauma. Yeah, so I mean, the theory as you're getting to would be you could change the epigenome, whether it's through chromatin, uh, acetylation, methylation, somehow through these experiences, and it would be going through down through multiple generations. Uh, the reason I know it's controversial is when I reviewed Sid Mukherjee's book, The Gene. Uh, he had put in that it was, you know, that, that it was real in humans and that the, the attack dogs came out all over the place. Um, now, um, I, we've covered a lot of these uh, pathways. One that we haven't yet touched on is the gut microbiome. And the idea here, of course, it could be somewhat linked to the, um, the uh, caloric restriction story, but it seems to be independent of that as well. That is, um, there, our immunity is very much influenced by our gut microbiome. There's the gut-brain axis and all sorts of interactions going on there. But um, what about the idea of using probiotics and uh, particular b bacterial species um, as a, introducing the people as an idea uh, in the future to promote health span? Yeah, it's a, it's a great idea. So I just want to back up and say that, that the microbiome, the reason it's so fraught is because for a long time, people had confused correlation and causation, right? So they would see that a person who has X disease has a difference in the microbiome from people who don't have that disease. And so the question was always, do they have that disease because of a difference in the microbiome or the disease influence the microbiome? And of course, even things that's eating different food, for example, if a child with autism doesn't want to eat certain, a range of foods, 
it's going to have an effect on the microbiome. That does not mean the microbiome causes their autism. And so that's right. something where, and the same thing with Alzheimer's disease patients, I think that's often the source of some of this confusion. And uh, I think people wish that like, you know, they could cure a lot of diseases by taking a probiotic. On the other hand, now there's actually some really compelling data. So um, Dario Valenzano's lab um, did a really nice experiment in killifish, which is, you know, my second favorite aging model research organism. So killifish, turquoise killifish only live a few months. And so you can do aging studies really quickly. And what Dario's group did was they took the microbiome at like middle-aged fish. They wiped out their microbiome with antibiotics and they added back either young or same age. And they saw a really nice extension of lifespan with the young microbiome. So that suggests in that case where everything else is the same, it really does have a nice effect. And uh, John Cryan's group in uh, Ireland did something similar with mice, and they showed that there was a beneficial effect on cognitive function in older mice. So those are two examples of, you know, uh, studies where it really does seem like there is an effect. Um, so it could be beneficial. And then there's, of course, um, the things like uh, um, microbiome transfer for people who are in the hospital who have had, you know, other things. Because, you know, your microbiome also helps you pre prevent other diseases, right? Those being there, if you wipe out all of your microbiome, you can actually get infected with other things. So it's actually a, a protective barrier. So um, there's a lot of benefits. I think in order to control, we don't know a ton about how to control it. We know like we do, there are these, um, it's gross, but uh, fecal microbiome. Oh, yeah. FMT. FMTs, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so um, I think there that is kind of the extreme, but it can be done. Um, yeah, so I think in appropriate cases, it could be a very good strategy. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there was a study um, about resilience of the immune system, which showed that women have a significant advantage in that um, they have just the right balance of not having uh, a uh, hyper-inflammatory reaction to uh, whether it's a pathogen or other stimulus. Where, and they also have, uh, of course, a competent immunocompetent system to respond. So. Uh, unlike men overall, um, that although the problem, of course, with more prone to autoimmunity okay. because of having two X chromosomes and exist or whatever other mm -hmm. factors, but also there's a balance that there's an advantage that uh, have uh, and the immune system as a target for health span and, mm -hmm. and lifespan. A lot of things that we've talked about um, it have some interaction with the immune system. Is there anything direct that we can do to promote a healthier immune system and avoid immunosenescence and inflammaging infl uh, or immunoaging or whatever you want to call it? So I will admit that this is a, uh, immunology is a field that I want to learn more about. I do not know enough about it to give a really great answer. And I think it's one of the things that kind of shied away from when I wrote the book that if I were to um, rewrite it, I would add a whole new section on it. Cause I think that's a really booming field, this interaction between immunology and aging. Obviously there's immune aging, but what does that really mean? Yeah. So I feel like I can't give you a really intelligent answer about that. And I, even though I'd like to, and I don't know how much of it's because, um, there's just sort of this general idea that the immune function, immune system stops functioning well. But I, I do feel like the, the immune system is actually so mysterious, right? Like I have a peanut allergy, for example. We don't even really, I mean, we can, uh, you know, 
prime ourselves against that now. We can, you know, we can give kids little bits of peanuts and like, but all the things that, uh, I, feel, I feel like immunology is the one that's probably like taking off the most and we'll probably in a decade know way more about it than, than we do now. But um, I can't give you a very smart answer right now. Yeah, no, I do think it's really provocative. And the fact that if you have these exhausting T cells that are, yeah. that are basically your, your, your backup system of your immune system and they're not working, uh, that's not good. And maybe that they can be, they can be rubbed up without being uh, problematic. We'll see. And I but, guess the real question is, do we need to do something independent or is that folded into everything else? Like if you were giving someone a drug that seemed very good systemically or some of these blood factors, would that, would you have to do something special just for the immune system? Or is that something that would also be affecting that? I feel like that would be good to know. You know, the other uh, area that I want to bring up, which is a little more futuristic, um, is genome editing. So uh, recently when I spoke to David Liu, yeah. he mentioned, well, uh, we, actually it was uh, Jennifer Doudna who first uh, kind of put it out there. But we discussed the idea of changing the people like me who are ApoE4 carriers to ApoE2, which uh -huh. is associated with longer life and That's all right. these other good things. Why don't we just edit ourselves to do that? Um, is that a prospect that you think ever could be actualized? Well, I was just at a talk by Britt Adamson just like moments ago, and that field is moving really fast, right? Like all the work that David Lee has done. And it's really exciting, right? This idea that you can now cure sickle cell anemia. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, fascinating. So I think, and I think Jennifer Dowdow, rightly proposed early on that like what we should really be hitting first are like blood blood's really good because it's not hitting the germ line it's really like something where we can help people at that stage yeah so um i was thinking about that while Britt was talking like what are the things we really want to address with crispr i'm not sure how high up on the list aging related factors will be compared to a lot of you know childhood diseases things that are really debilitating but it certainly is true and since um, when we're looking at ApoE4, I think that's like the one exception because that is so strongly correlated with healthy lifespan and Alzheimer's and things. So we really want to do something about that. So the question is, how would we do that? It's not a blood factor. You know, like I think we'd have to think hard about that, but it is on the list of, you know, looming on the horizon. And all the wild. I, and I wouldn't be surprised if someday... Uh, and David, of course, thought it yeah, would yeah. Need to be, it's realistic, but it's not obviously in the in the short term. Well, this has been enthralling to go through all these possibilities. I guess, um, you know, when you put it all together, there's just so many ways that we might be able to. And one of the things that you also point out in your book, which something that should not be forgotten, uh, is the fact that um, this all these things could even worsen the inequities that we face today. That is, if any one of these click, if not multiple, it isn't like they're going to be available to all. And, you know, the, the problem we have now, especially in this country, without universal health and access issues, is uh, could be markedly exacerbated, as we're seeing with the GLP-1 drugs, too, by the Absolutely. way. Absolutely. So uh, I just want to give you a, a chance to, to reinforce what you wrote in the book, because I think this is where a lot of times science leads and doesn't realize the practical implications of who would benefit. Yeah, I think I think actually for aging research often, like even when I start, first started look, doing this work back in like 2000, 
the first thing people would ask me if they're below a certain age was, don't you think that's terrible? Make the rich people just live the longest. And they're not wrong about that. I think what it can, uh, what you should raise awareness about the fact that like all these, even these things that we consider simple, like doing caloric restriction or getting exercise, even those things are not that straightforward if you're working two jobs or if you know don't have access to excellent foods in your neighborhood, right? Fruits, fruits and vegetables. So um, if we really want to not just extend longevity, but raise life expectancy, then we should be doing a lot more that's like um, for, you know, improving the the quality of life of many people. And so there is that idea. On the other hand, I do want to point out that as we discover more and more of these things, like metformin is, you know, off patent, right? It's like, it's really old. And so as more of these things get discovered and more broadly used, I do think that that may be a case where we could end up um, having a- more people might have access to things more easily. So that's right. my hope. Sure. So I don't want to. I don't want to discourage anyone from developing a longevity drive. I think eventually that could help a lot of people if it's not too absurdly expensive. Yeah. No. I I certainly agree. And one last footnote is that um, you know we did a well a study called the Welderly here about fourteen hundred people over age eighty five uh, who'd never been sick. So we our goal here wasn't lifespan. It was to understand if there was genomics, which we did whole genome sequencing of this group. We didn't find much, like the study that you cited in the book by the Calico group. Um, and so just to give hope that people, if they don't have uh, what they think are family genetics uh, that uh, of short life or short health span, that there that may not be as uh, much to, to that as a lot of people think. Uh, uh, any final thoughts about that point? Because it's, it's one that's out there and data goes in different directions. Yeah, the calico study you mentioned, I think that's the one where they found that your husband or lifespan mostly went with like almost like your in-laws, which actually points again to like your socioeconomic group, probably like you, you marry people. Most people marry people are like in a similar socioeconomic group. And that's probably what that mostly had to do with. But I do think if I'm going to say like one thing, because because these a lot of these drugs are on the horizon, they're not yet available or there's nothing I can like hang on to for like an FDA approved drug to extend like I do think the one thing that uh, I would encourage people to do even more than the dietary restriction stuff it is um, exercise because that's just yeah. generally beneficial in so yeah. many different ways and so if we can get people doing a little more exercise I think that would be the one thing uh, that would probably could help a lot of people well I'm glad we're winding up with that because I think the data from lifestyle which is you know exercise as you're pointing out, um, as well as nutrition and sleep and, you know, all the things that... Uh, all the boring things we already thought, yeah, right? <laughs> that we know about, but we don't, uh, you know, necessarily uh, put in our daily lives is, is there's a lot there. There's no yeah. question that those studies, uh, I think, really have reinforced that, even recent ones. Well, what a pleasure to talk to you about this and do this tour of the various exciting prospects. I hope I haven't missed anything. I know we can't go over all the pathways, and obviously, there have been some busts in the past, which we don't need to review, like the famous resveratrol sirtuin story, which uh, you addressed in the book. I do want to encourage people that this book is is extraordinary. Your work that you put into it had to be consumptive for I don't know how many <laughs> years of work. There was many years of work. I, I someone like my the, uh, editor like sat that we sat down to lunch right after it got finished, and she was like, "So, what are you going to work on for your next book?" And I was like. Oh. 
Well, I, I, uh, it's a, it's a scholarly approach to a very, um, you know, a, a important field. If you can influence the aging process, you influence every part of our body function. So, the, the, the uh, impact here is profound, and the contribution that you've made in your science as well as in your writing here is, is just so uh, terrific. So, thank you, Colleen. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>